For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning. Uh, I want to thank Kogetsu again for her generosity in making a home available for today's program. And I'd also like to thank Taigen, my teacher, for his tough love in asking me to give this Dharma talk today. Uh, because he is fully aware of how much I dislike public speaking. But I think he's also aware that um, I'm sort of like the Spanish philosopher and public intellectual of the first half of the 19th, the 20th century, Jose Ortega I said, who said that he never knew what to think about anything until he written an article about it. And I tend to feel like um, I really never know what to think about koan or aspect of dharma, unless uh, I've been asking the dharma talk and have to get my thoughts in order. So I'm going to speak today about the bodhisattva precepts and how they are a response to our ordinary, deluded sense of separation and independence from the world and I will hope I can make clear that this is not some philosophical discussion but a discussion of our concrete lived expression of awakened mind in our lives you know um, Much of our life is caught up with pervasive feelings of anxiety and fear, frustration and anger, a desire, craving and dissatisfaction. All of that is based on that confused sense of separation in the world, which makes us feel like a separate self. And when we face the um, impermanence and constant change that takes place in our lives that causes us to respond with fruitless, constant search for self-gratification and self-validation and security. But our practices of Sazen and practice of the Bodhisattva, 16 Bodhisattva precepts, are a different way of responding to this world and dukkha. They're based on what Dogen Zinji called identity action. Action based on recognition of our non-separation from the world, that uh, 
We are intimately connected with the world, part of the world, and intimately connected with our beings, which allows us to set aside this sense of separation and uh, set aside our self-absorbed thoughts and feelings and desires and plunge into the world, and live a life with and for the benefit of others. So some of you may not be familiar with the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. They are a set of vows. They consist of three parts. The first is the three refuges. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. What are called the three pure precepts. I vow to embrace and sustain right conduct, which is sometimes translated as I vow to refrain from evil, or I vow to refrain from harming, or I vow to refrain from misconduct, I vow to fulfill all laws and moral obligations. Different translations trying to express the fact that we are vowing to refrain from actions based on our deluded sense of self, our deluded desires and emotions that give rise to harm to others. In the final vow of the three pure precepts, is I vow to embrace and sustain all beings. Frequently translated as I vow to live for the benefit and welfare and harmony of all beings. And finally, there are the 10 grave precepts. I vow not a disciple of the Buddha does not kill. A disciple of the Buddha does not take what is not given or steal. A disciple of the Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of the Buddha does not lie. A disciple of the Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. A disciple of the Buddha does not speak of the faults of others. A disciple of the Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. A disciple of the Buddha is not possessive of anything or Frequently, a disciple of the Buddha does not pull dharma or other assets from people who request them. A disciple of the Buddha does not harbor anger or ill will. And finally, a disciple of the Buddha does not disparage the three treasures. So the 16 Bodhisattva precepts are based on very old vows from the very beginnings of classical Indian Buddhism, where uh, the three treasures, the, uh, the vow to take refuge in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are from, exist from the very earliest days of Buddhism. There are this version of the three pure precepts, which is a little different. There's a a section of the Dhammapada that says, I vow to refrain from all evil, I vow to practice all good, I vow to purify my mind. And then uh, in classical, early classical Buddhism, people would take, um, would vow to observe five precepts, which are the same as the first five of the ten grave precepts. But there's a difference. I mean, if you listen to that, I vow to 
purify my mind, um, for example, is, is all about self-cultivation. And um, there's an attitude as well that exists not only in early Buddhism, but in Mahayana Buddhism up to Zen, which sees the practice of the refuges, the uh, precepts, and um, and, and the first five great, great precepts as a staged practice that following the precepts allows us to put our lives in order so it becomes harmonious, which is conducive to good meditation. And good meditation will allow us to become, to develop wisdom and become enlightened. But our Soto school, Zen, in particular, says no, that is not it. These practices are for the expression right now, the realization right now of awakened mind for the benefit of all beings. And they make, and they make this expression concrete lived experience. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about each of the, of the sections of the precepts. The first is I take refuge in Buddha. And from the beginnings of early Buddhism, taking refuge in the Buddha was to be inspired by the example of Shakyamuni Buddha as a human being who realized perfect awakening, transmitted the perfect teaching. But in Soto Zen, we see the refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in our Buddha nature, our capacity for awakening, dropping off our delusions, delusion, deluded um, desires and, and emotions. Um, In Buddha nature, in a sense, this capacity for awakening is not just something that we can develop over time. If we practice really hard and do, you know, lift spiritual weights, we will become spiritually gifted eventually, which is an attitude that exists in much of Mahayana Buddhism. But instead, the idea is that we are inherently awake, awake right now. We are Buddhas right now who are distracted because we are caught up in this deluded sense of separation and from our deluded desires, emotions, and suffering. So what we do in taking refuge in the Buddha is we, we commit to realizing this Buddha nature now and the classic way we do that in Soto Zen is through Zazen, where we sit down and do nothing. 
We don't attempt to gain anything. We don't try to prove, improve anything. Uh, nothing. We sit down without moving, letting deluded thoughts and other thoughts uh, and emotions and desires arise and seize until our mind quiets, our thoughts, feelings, and emotions become more transparent, and there's a, a turn of awareness uh, in which we recognize ourselves as not so much a meditator or a doer or a perceiver or a thinker, but as a body and mind right here in this moment, in this situation, intimately connected with all other beings. We are beings with all other beings. We are not outside looking in. So Zazen is the way that we make this a Buddha nature, a concrete lived expression. Uh, in doing that, we get to the second precept, the, the second refuge, taking refuge in Dharma, which classically, and even in Sotol Zen, would be taking refuge, relying upon, taking as a base for our life, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, but more profoundly, the teachings and practices transmitted by the Buddha. But beyond that, Dharma is the reality that these teachings describe and practice, and what these practices are intended to allow us to wake up to and express. It's the world as it really is, which is a world of intimate interconnection. Um, boundless, open, everything interdependent, everything intimately connected, inseparable, and that includes awakened mind, deluded mind, good thoughts, emotions, feel, desires, and our deluded mind, our deluded desires, our deluded emotions. All of it included in Buddha nature. When we take refuge in the Dharma, part of the morning service, it's celebrated at many Zen uh, centers as we say, I take refuge in Dharma before all beings, immersing body and mind deeply in the way. And that's really an extension of what taking refuge in the Buddha is, which is I take refuge in Buddha before all beings, immersing body and mind deeply in the way. We are immersing ourselves in the world. We are part of it. And Dharma is this completely interconnected, intimately connected world. Suzuki Roshi used to refer to sometimes as things as it is. Things exist, but they do not exist independently. There is no existence separate from other things. You see me here, but there is no individual separate Douglas. That's, that is the teaching of emptiness. 
I tend to think of it myself as it, it is the realization and practice of we us power. I with all things, with all beings throughout the universe are we us power. There is no Eve and Douglas. There's only us. There is no separation. This integrated interrelationship is what we are. And that takes us to uh, take refuge in sauna, which is taking refuge, relying upon the community of practitioners, both priests, monastics, and lay people. Um, they're practicing, they support our practice, but more profoundly, Soto Zen sees it as the Sangha as the harmonious community of practitioners and all be living beings live harmoniously as we are able to cut through or set aside delusions, deluded desires and emotions. So those three refuges are what are really, we commit, we vow to put into action in the three pure precepts. Remember, the first is I vow to embrace and sustain right conduct or refrain from evil or I vow to refrain from harm, fulfill all moral guideline codes and laws, which is really aiming at you know, moral codes and laws are intended to prevent us from taking harmful actions. So that's, that's why that translation is, is pretty common. Um, and I think the real point of that is not that this is, this is a commitment we make in order to become awakened, to bring about some change. It is a commitment based on having awakened to our connected, inseparable being with others and acting in that way. I will not harm other beings because that would be causing harm to us. It would be my harm, harm to me, as much as it would be harm to the other person. Um, and to tell the truth, the first pure precept of going to um, practice right conduct, to practice to avoid misconduct, to refrain from evil, is the umbrella for all of the ten grave precepts. Through grave precepts are don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in harmful sexual relation, sexual relationships in a harmful way. Don't deceive anyone. Don't, uh, don't encourage anyone to addiction or to cloud their mind or to become misguided by giving them intoxicants. 
Uh, don't disparage others by speaking of their faults um, and causing other people to think poorly of them, destroying their reputation. And similarly, not to puff oneself up at the expense of others, which is really another way of denigrating them. Don't be possessive of anything. Don't be stingy. Uh, it's the ninth pure precept. And don't disparage the three treasures. Don't discourage anyone from taking up practice to, so that they can become awakened themselves. Um, so the second pure precept, I vow to embrace and sustain all good, is frequently interpreted or even translated as I vow to live selflessly, live in enlightenment, act in a wholesome way, and to live in a wholesome way with others. And what what does that mean? I think I think you could think of uh, the four of the Brahma Viharas that Hugetsu has spoken about so much. Feel kindness and goodwill toward others, to live in a, with a caring attitude toward others, to engage in uh, rejoicing at the good fortune of others, to be unselfish, um, feel compassion, use kind speech, live harmoniously with others. The final uh, Embrace and sustain all beings. The third pure precept is frequently translated as I vow to live for the welfare and benefit of all beings. Include, and Dogen is clear that working for the benefit of all beings includes sharing the Dharma with them. And we do that because work for their benefit, because their benefit is our benefit. Their suffering is our suffering, and we respond with caring and compassion and generosity. Bodhi, as I said, Bodhi Dogen talks about all three of these, all of the precepts. being based on uh, the recognition of the inseparability of our lives from all lives, from our being, from all beings. In living out that connected life, he says, the world becomes one, is one suchness. It is one reality. It is we express, we embody the universe as it is in our lives. Our individual lives become expressions, the activity of the entire universe. So, what time is it? How much time is it? I hope that based on this, 
it's clear that like the experience of Zazen, living the precepts is concrete awakening uh, and activity. It's not some theoretical understanding. It's not some special experience, sort of woohoo experience. It is just being here, waking up to right here and acting in intimacy with all things and all beings. This is something we can do. We can do it. It's something that you have certainly done when you have practiced Zazen and getting off the cushion, you have acted, you have acted out a life of Zazen, acted uh, under the guidance of Zazen learning. So I will encourage you to practice diligently, embrace the precepts, and live for the benefit of all beings. Please, um, if you have any comments or questions, please share them. Help me uh, order my thoughts some more. I just want to say thank you for such a wonderful explanation. Thank you very much. Suzuki Roshi would have agreed. I think so. In spirit. We'll get some sound. Thank you very much, Douglas. I was moved today as you were speaking and thinking about this embracing and sustaining all beings, but how, you know, our Sangha, despite having taken to the road as kind of a homeless Sangha flown around in the clouds, how we've been coming together so seamlessly. And that our very practice of how we organize ourselves in the Zoom space and with each other is this manifestation of both taking refuge, but also the pure precepts of benefiting all beings. So I, I just thought about this as like all of our activity, but especially how we come together and practice in this very close setting. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. So thank you everyone. So thank you for the talk and so, and I, I hope it's okay for me to share this, but I, I have an exchange um, with the young person who has was um, brought up in Shambhala and part of that community and has been very active in it and um, has taught meditation. And um, and she and and that the they've been very disturbed. Um, about the you know some of the things that have happened with abuse of position and and said that what disturbs 
doesn't it's it's not just um that it seems like it's predominant in a or maybe predominant is the wrong word, but it seems to have occurred in many um Buddhist lineages and I know there's been problems with some of the Zen ones too. Um or you know accusations of people misusing sexuality, misusing their position. And 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 they said that it was hard now for them to teach meditation because they felt like that they had been able to say before that meditation helps you not to be an asshole. But that, <laughs> but that demonstrably, it you know, in some cases, didn't seem to work. So I, I was, um, I, you know, I had my own response to that, but I, I was curious about yours. Well, I think, uh, I would think that generally meditation does help prevent us from being assholes. But we have a lot of karma. We have a lot of conditioning. And we are easily, our attention, our awareness is easily captured by perceptions and of the world and that perception and separation from the world and the thoughts and feelings. It's easy for that to happen. It, ha- it will happen over and over again. So it's not a one and done thing. There's not even one and done enlightenment. <laughs> People can have awakening experiences, but that does not mean that they don't need to continue to practice this connection, life of connection. Uh, and the power of the desire both for sex and self-aggrandizement, really, mm-hmm. uh, is tremendous. And so it's not surprising, but it's still wrong, <laughs> when people abuse position in order to misbehave and treat other people as instruments of sexual satisfaction or is underlings or they can exercise power in order to feel better that way. Yeah. And, and I mean, I said to them that I also thought that that doesn't mean, you know, that teaching meditation isn't valuable yeah. and that these practices aren't valuable. And I mean, my own experience, I think they are helpful. Um, and I think, and I honor any anyone who who spends their effort and, and, and time to, to teach. And um, I don't think you throw that out because, you know, because some people continue to be assholes. Well, that's just fun. You know, I do have like a little bit of a thought on this too, and that is that Sangha is responsible. Somebody can't take advantage of me without my permission, pretty much unless it's a pretty severe situation. And the precepts and holding ourselves accountable, but also not, you know, there's an, it's very easy to idealize a teacher or, uh, you know, we come in a very patriarchal tradition mm-hmm. and hierarchical. And I, my personal feeling is our task in this time and age of Buddhist practice is to mm-hmm. shift that into an inclusive and cooperative time. That's my personal opinion. But I also think Sangha is responsible for 
speaking the truth that we all know. We know it in our meditation and we know it in the precepts. So thank you for bringing up that important <coughs> issue. Yeah, my, my first experience of Buddhism was at uh, a Buddhist community, Tibetan Buddhist community in Vermont, the Tale of the Tiger, which is now known as Karmacholi. It's one of the main practice places in what is now Shambhala, and it was becoming Dharmadatu, the teacher. Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche was still alive, and I still believe that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was a man of great spiritual gifts, um, great prajna and compassion, but he was an alcoholic, and he was a serial abuser of women. And I still, you know, I spend time with that pretty regularly, trying to make sense of that. So, Jen. Um, I am riveted by the January 6th committee hearings, and I try never to miss one in real time. And um, the whole point of these hearings is to destroy the reputation of our former president and to bring him and to bring his followers into an understanding of uh, the bad things about him. And it's really hard for me to, and I brought this up when uh, Asian talked about uh, stealing. It's really hard for me to be in a culture where showing somebody's faults and their wrongdoing is so important. And to say, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's very it's very difficult for me to think, well, I don't, I wouldn't destroy Trump's reputation because I'm a Buddhist and I don't do that kind of thing. Um, this is a huge conflict because um, what do you do if somebody is very, very mistaken or is simply lying? And it is causing um, disruption in, the, if you'll pardon the expression, the body politic. Mm -hmm. it, it's, and if you do, for example, try to destroy the reputation of Donald Trump, is that really aggrandizing yourself? Or is it um, showing that, that we're all part of nature and we want to um, and, and, and we want to either we, we're not trying to bring him in we're trying to put him in jail you know this it's a conflict and I wonder how we can reconcile this kind of thing 
Uh, I can only take a stab at that. Other people may have thoughts, but um, a great deal depends on intention as well as the results of your action. I don't know that, I mean, certainly there are people who are destroying, want to destroy the reputation of Donald Trump because they hate Donald Trump. But all of the precepts have to be taken in light of the fact that they're bodhisattva precepts. They are expressions of compassion and compassion toward everyone, the entire population of the United States, trying to bring about, uh, to maintain a harmonious, healthy, democratic society. And so I don't think it's wrong to speak of action, Donald Trump's actions, to subvert that so as to help to restore that democracy and hopefully harmony. I mean, if you can think of any democracy as harmonious, it's a clash in views and desires and ultimate aims. But I think we have to, we look at it that, I don't think, you know, I, I think it would be Buddhist to say, you know, there are different theories of what bases for putting people in prison just to punish them because that's poetic justice. They did bad, so they ought to feel pain. Yeah, they, yeah. Um, to deter other people from doing it and to prevent people from committing the same harm again. So to the extent that people want, I mean, I think many people would be completely happy if, you know, if they could just keep Donald Trump from being reelected. Others would want to see him in prison so that he could not subvert an election the next time, or and undermine if he, if elected, undermine uh, only the principles of Marco. So, and to give an example, I mean, we the other times in the past, Richard Nixon was pardoned, so the full consequences of his attempt to subvert elections. Uh, you know, we're never fully carried out. Perhaps we need to fix that this time. Well, I, I think that what you said, Jan, um, connects to what Hogetsu said. Um, and that, I mean, there are different ways of framing the hearings, and one way of framing it is to say, uh, and, 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 and maybe they need to be more explicitly framed this way, I don't know, that, that it, it's about how we function as a democracy and i think that it's interesting to think about what Hogetsu said that that our our practice as a sauna that that is partly this um you know dialogue between our, our ideas about democracy and what that means and how we form a community and and what does that mean if, you know if we think about the the you know the united states as a sangha as as our larger political community is a song and and how do we want it to function and and what what's our responsibility as, as citizens and residents like forget to be saying I about think, the song yeah follow us first and then jerry i was going to touch on the same thing that the hearings themselves ideally are going slow so that we as a nation, as a group, take responsibility for what happened. 
And it's not just one person because one person was really just a symptom of a greater problem. He didn't get there without a vacuum being created for him to be there. So if we're careful and skillful about how things have done, hopefully we can all see our role in what happened. Um, but we live in a time where that seems to be increasingly difficult. So I wanted to go back into Douglas, how you were talking about the precepts as practice, that there is a symbiotic relationship. And even if one can't sit in meditation, they could take the precepts as a vehicle for practice until they can sit in meditation because it is Dharma realized. And it is a way for us to bring intention of our practice into the world. It's easier when we don't really know people. So it's easier to be kind to people we don't know. And then we could try and make that smaller and smaller, trying to be kind to our places who maybe set us off and compassion and practice precepts with them and then our families and then maybe ourselves. But roping back to like Sangha is a way to practice taking responsibility for what happens in the group. When you have skin in the game, when you care about your own practice or your own place in the world, it's harder to then take responsibility for the group because you don't want to lose your skin in the game. So we have to acknowledge that all of these variables are at work under something that seems so simple, meditation and precepts. Well, I like your description of how it's harder maybe to uh, express kindness toward the people closest to you. You know, that's sort of flipping the classic description of loving kindness meditation where you start, I really love my mother or I really love my family. I wish goodwill to them, to my family, to my friends, my local community, eventually extending to the world. But I think it's true that as a practice, perhaps it could, it should be flipped as you suggested. Sure, it's easy to say, oh, I love everybody, uh, generating goodwill to the entire universe and gradually come closer and closer to the people you've had real conflict with. And how do you um, include them in your world of connection and kindness and goodwill? That, that's, you know, that's rubber meeting the road, nitty gritty, what is that? I think sometimes we look at people who do harm, like someone abuses their power, sexual or whatever, as if we weren't capable of doing the same thing. And I think it's a matter of learning to recognize flaws, evils, as that's just part of who we are. And to look at that in our own lives, because once we can accept the flaws and the evil we do in our own lives, we have a different appreciation of other people who commit similar acts. And, you know, in our own life, we probably take steps to adjust it or to fix it. And so we have a better understanding of what it feels like to, to do something. And so we have a better understanding of how to approach somebody else who's in that situation. Katie? 
Thank you for your talks. Um, I'm going to take us off topic from what we've been talking about. If that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm interested in a pattern that I've noticed with myself um, in which failure and shame around messing up these, these precepts leads me to a greater sense of like, isolation and individualism. And I wonder if you have any suggestions for how to do it. Um, so that, as I, as I grew the feeling, like, I'm sorry, did you hear me? I, oh, uh, Katie asked about, um, whether we have any suggestions for the problem of, I'm going to paraphrase it, it's a lot, but feeling perhaps, uh, feelings of, of, of failure, maybe even guilt, when you have not been able to live in accordance with precepts. And I, I think, you know, I think I, under, I understand how that can happen, and I think what may be helpful is to, to think that the precepts are not like laws or the Ten Commandments, where you have a duty to uh, comply with them, and if you fail to do it, you are some you are wrong and some sort of bad person. They are they are descriptions of what it means to live when we have been able to wake up to right here and act, live this connected life. Um, so they're not mandates. At the same time, it's a helpful practice to recite the precepts, memorize the precepts, not so that before you enter any social encounter, you go, oh, I'm going to speak kindly now, or something like that, which I think is, in fact, it's off base. <laughs> that attempting to do that, perhaps, in that way, is sort of, sort of gaining mind, um, dualistic. It's sort of what we're trying, we're trying to overcome with our practice and sort of throwing gasoline on the fire. And so I think it's more helpful to learn the precepts, recite the precepts on a regular basis, so that they serve as sort of, um, you know, uh, gutter bumpers at the <laughs> in bowling, where um, you uh, find yourself wanting to be snarky about someone else, having recited the precepts on a regular basis, um, could trigger a watch out, refrain from doing that, be awake. Let the impulse to do that uh, subside so that you can deal in a more authentic and awakened, kind way. So, yeah, I understand. It's, uh, it's, uh, in fact, that was very much um, 
thinking about that problem was how I came to think about the precepts the way I've talked about them today. Um, Taigen had asked me to give a Dharma talk, but then in uh, May, a friend of mine in New Orleans, John Voss, at Mid-City Zen, invited me to attend his Jukai ceremony, the ceremony in which a lay person receives the precepts and vows to live in accordance with the precepts. That was the first time I had seen a Jukai ceremony in two years. Uh, very moving. We also have a student who's a prisoner in New Lisbon Correctional Institution in Wisconsin, who has become a Buddhist in prison. He's a very dedicated, very dedicated practitioner. And he wants very much to take Jukai, but he can't because there's no teacher who's available to go perform the ceremony in his prison. So in the meantime, um, he and I are working on the precepts, studying the precepts together, so that when he eventually is released from prison, he will be able to take Chikad with the teacher. And finally, exactly the problems you're talking about. Um, the, the risk of, of living in accordance with the precepts, or in this case, the paramitas, was the topic of a long conversation I had with Ruben two or three weeks ago, in which it became clear to me I was really uncomfortable with this idea that, oh, I'm going to live I'm going to live by the precepts. I'm going to obey the precepts. I'm going to obey the paramitas, something like that. And it took, uh, it took some thinking under the, the pressure of having to give a Dharma talk to sort of um, settle my thoughts and figure out how I understand the precepts, which I really think is much more in accordance with Soto's in teaching and practice. So I'm, as I said, thank you, Ruben. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. Right. Yes. Um, in response, um, he, Douglas has spoken quite a bit about just now about the, uh, the internal work that's involved in coming up against your own failure in, in practice in life. And there's another whole way of approaching it that I found very, very helpful in the failure and guilt of wanting to precepts. And that's talking with. A practice leader or a wise Dharma friend intimately to actually talk about behavior if you're concerned about it and describe it and how you feel or how and it's amazing what can happen. You can probably do that to some extent, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in the, the relational aspect, the one on one relational aspect, and it's in Sunday. Jerry? Is there someone online who'd like to offer something? I thought we were in the room. Is there a hand up? David. David. Please. Take a turn.
Was was that me being indicated or someone else? No. Yes, we thought you, we saw your hand go up. Wonderful. Yes, I was waving my hand. So I, I would like to come back to the to the question that um, that Jan posed about maybe maybe to put it something like um, right kind speech on the one hand and and things like truth and justice on the other hand. Um, I I. I think that that's not a that's not particularly a Buddhism problem. Uh, I mean, uh, thinking, for example, of Plato and Socrates, they both say that you know um, um, they they both recommend doing good to everyone and harming nobody because if I harm somebody else, I'm making myself unjust and thereby harming myself. But at the same time, they both have a theory of justice that includes things like punishment, things like laws that have teeth in order to protect uh, people who are weak and who are uh, who, who are not otherwise protected. That just seems um, uh, that 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 just seems really really important to, to note. And if if I may share a story around it, so not too long ago, I posted um, on Facebook a cartoon that I thought was funny, and it showed Trump. Um, in this scene that, that we all have thought about so much now of being in the car and putting his, putting his hands on the, um, on, on the driver's neck. And it was, the cartoon was making fun of his tiny hands. And a friend reached out to me and said, look, that's really not a good thing to be posting. And, and my first response was, oh, I think it's a good thing to make fun of someone who wanted to be a tyrant. And he said, no, let's, let's think about this more, more carefully. Um, it's, it's, it's not helping the cause. Um, it's, it's mean spirited. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's really not a good look. It's, it's not taking the high road. And I think he's absolutely right. So maybe, maybe the, I mean, just maybe the, the, the precepts invite, that particular precept invites me to think about, I, I, you know, things like motivation, but, but I'm, I, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm really feeling strongly that it's important that that uh, that truth that that the precept against disparaging other people is not a is not a bar to to things like truth and justice and 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 protecting people. Yeah, well, I think that all of the grave precepts, you know, they're examples of what might be unskillful conduct, but they're inadequate, right? I mean, is really that list of ten things is that that the list of things that would be uh, deluded and unkind. I mean, it's okay. I get don't kill people, but what about burning down their house? Why isn't that listed? <laughs> the thing to understand is that these are examples, and it, and they always must be interpreted. They're they are examples of what the three pure precepts are talking about. So it's about living a life of connection, living a life of kindness, and caring for the welfare and benefit of all people. And so the ten grave precepts have to be interpreted in that light. I mean, there are even co- obvious conflicts, and you know, the obvious one, which is traditional in Western philosophy as well. Okay, you're not you're not supposed to lie. Well, but what about the hunter who's chasing the rabbit that you just saw run by, and he says, "Have you seen a rabbit?" And are you supposed to say, "Yeah, he's over there hiding in that hole. Go shoot him," or are you supposed to say, "No"? I mean, there's there's a conflict there. So. The ten grave precepts are helpful, but they're not, you know, they don't really illustrate perfectly the compassionate mind and awakened mind that the three pure precepts are trying to evoke. Jan. Um, 
I, I was reading stories uh, yesterday about slaves and um, how s slaves were subject to scams and lies and tricks to keep them enslaved and how they bested their um, the, their oppressor by outlying and out scamming them and fooling them and getting away. <laughs> so it's a matter of telling a lie to escape someone who's lying to you. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, it seems like a good thing. We have time for maybe one. Deborah. Oh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I just wanted to say briefly, thanks everyone so much for this rich conversation and different views and uh, questions about approaching this very heartfelt subject, which is living with the precepts. I just wanted to say a couple of things. One was um, for me, because I am been long distance from Asanga for a few years, the precepts have been a huge part of my practice in terms of making my practice alive. I feel, I feel they're really rich. I don't view them as narrow guidelines. Um, Rev Anderson has written a book about them. Other other teachers have, and maybe something that the sangha or individually you could look into. But they're very heartfelt. And I um, I just wanted to say sometimes if I breach a precept in my perception, I will take it with me to the cushion. I still turn to zazen, um, and then I also agree with the gentleman who spoke and in, in having a dharma friend. I just think it's really alive to. Uh, Connect to yourself if you feel you're separating, especially if it's something that's kind of coming back a couple times. So I just wanted to make those two comments. Thank you so much for listening. Maybe one more. We've talked for a long time. David. What's coming up for me as I'm hearing this again and again is uh, the term philosophy and the source of that with the Highlander School. Tennessee, which was where Martin Luther King and John Lewis, uh, Rosa Parks trained in their civil rights. But they were based on a, an American philosopher, Jeremiah Royce. And his whole thing, the beloved community means that we don't argue, we don't say, you know, we agree to disagree. That's really not a lot. What is really what was our goal here, well, it's not that it's not a lot. But the real goal is to bring out the best in each other. How can I make you the best Douglas? How can Douglas make me the best David? How can Jerry and I in our relationship help make each of us the best that we can be? That's maybe what the heart of the precepts are contained. How can we bring out the best in ourselves and in others? And it's not so much that we're trying to punish or trying to diminish, but rather how can we make ourselves better? And, and, and Donald Trump may have delusions over here somewhere, but all the other people, you know, if I can, if Donald Trump can see the light, of course, be great, but I don't think that'll happen. But what about everyone else? How do you bring out the best in each other? And I think that's really the essence of our practice. Or at least now, from what I'm hearing, all this going on from what you said today. That's what I do. How can we do that? That, that, that keeps the connection.
I think we should wrap up. Um, would we chant the four forty-seven bells now? Yes. yes. Okay. And then we'll do announcements. Yeah. But just to remind everyone, um, after our service happens, after announcements, and we definitely want to remind people we're having a parking sangha member ceremony afterwards. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to end them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma's are helpless. I vow to end them. Unsurpassable, I vow to realize.